Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. God, thank you and praise you for the day. Lord, to be honest, I'm a little nervous talking about um, things this intimate. But at the same time, it's, it's um, a joy to speak of love and to consider uh, just the love that you have for us, Lord. What a glorious thing. Father, thank you that the economy of God, the kingdom um, economy, is, is not one of knowledge. It's not one of power or um, strength. It's one of love. Father, we all desire to be loved, and you place uh, in, a, in us a desire or an ability to love. So we thank you for that. Help us to cultivate that ability tonight, and help us just to receive the love that you have for us. It is such a beautiful picture, Father. We thank you, and I do agree with Dave that you would help me to rightly divide your word. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. The Proverbs, Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22, he who finds a wife finds an okay thing. No, that's not what he says. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. God endorses and blesses and sanctifies the wedding union. It says, and obtains favor from the Lord. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And on the onset of this book, I want to hear, I want you to hear this a lot. I want to hear this a lot. God loves marriage. God loves the the covenant of marriage. It was something that he created, not something our nation created, not something the people of the world created. It's something that God created. We see that in the Genesis account. We see that man was to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. It was the God-ordained way from the very, very beginning. God loves marriage. Priests in the Old Testament, the, the, from the high priest to the, the everyday priest, were married. It was a, we know that because their lines were hereditary. To get the next priest, you had to have a kid. To have a kid, you had to be married. And so priests were married. So where the whole Catholic idea came from of priests being celibate was kind of silly. It goes against what God had initially ordained. Priests were married. You know what? There's no Old Testament word for bachelor. It wasn't intended that man was to remain single. It was God's supposition that all men would be married. We see... Paul's account of, of, um, the marriage, of weddings and marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, giving us instruction on how we are to love our wives and wives were to, are to respect their husbands. And it gives them this great um, way to live. But then at the very end of Ephesians chapter 5, it says, I speak of a greater mystery. It's not even, it's not even the man and wife relationship I'm necessarily talking about, but rather Christ and his bride, which is you and I, the church. God loves marriage. The first of Jesus' recorded miracles happened at a wedding. 
right? He changed the water to wine. The first of his miracles was there celebrating the marriage. And then one of the last pictures we get of the the church in the book, in in the Bible, is in Revelation chapter 19, where the, the groom and the bride sit down together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Something we have to look forward to. God loves marriage. Satan despises marriage. John would say he comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And one of the ways that he does that is by attacking this covenant that God has ordained to give the world a representation of just how much he loves the church. And Satan continually wants to attack marriages and the idea of marriage. I think all of us would agree that the day we live in, the day that you and I live in today, that marriage is under fire like never before. Most families are broken. Most kids are brought up with the idea that marriage is temporary at best if you need to do it at all. Satan has been effective in destroying marriages. Satan knows how important it is that a child would have a father in their life. And look at the way that dads skip out now. How many kids do you have? I don't know. I don't have any right now, but how many have you fathered? It's sad. And so, in our day, I think it's wise for us to look at this book, the Song of Solomon, for you and I to equip ourselves to... Not that we are here to defend God. God doesn't need defense. But that you and I would have an understanding of the biblical mandate given to us in the covenant of marriage. And, and the, the, the protection that it offers us in the, in the um, picture that it gives the world. And, and it would be wise for us as the bride of Christ to have a greater and deeper understanding of marriage. As I considered what I was going to say today, how I was going to take, what path I was going to take when it comes to the book, The Song of Solomon, I considered my audience. Who do we have here at Calvary Chapel Columbus when it comes to marriage? I mean, we've got, we've got single people, we've got young people that are, are you know, hoping perhaps one day to get married and still waiting to, to find the right person or come to the right age or whatever. So we've got, we've got single people, we've got newlyweds, we've got people that have been settled in, and, and are, are comfortable in their marriage, we've got people that have been married a long time, we've got divorced people, we've got widows and widowers, and how is this book on marriage going to relate to everybody? 2 Timothy 3.16, probably a verse we're familiar with, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, and by man he means man or woman, of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture is is given to us for the purpose of our benefit, to grow us, to teach us, to correct us, that we may be mature. And that includes the Song of Solomon. So even if marriage is a thousand miles from your mind right now, 
God still has something to say to you through this book. His word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it wants to speak to us. And so I just pray that as we start this book, that we'd open our hearts again to say, Lord, what would you have to say to me from this book? And there are two views that you can take when it comes to the book of Song of Solomon. If you've read it before, you might know what I'm, where I'm headed And there's been debate throughout history about what exactly was the intent of what was being said. Is it we can take it at face value that it's just a story given to us about marriage between a a Shulamite woman and her beloved. That's the characters we're going to get introduced here shortly, and it's just a, a purely under the sun kind of story. And you know what? If that's the only way we look at it, and many people teach it that way, just to look at it as a a manual for a positive marriage, it's a good thing. It, it, It does instruct, and we can see beautiful pictures of how we can improve our marriages, those of us who are married. We can glean things for this life from this Word. We can just look at it at face value and take nothing else into it. The other view would be that the, the book of the Song of Solomon is, is purely allegorical. This is a poetic book. It's, it's given to us um, as one of, the, one of the poetic books, songs, uh, um, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, these ideas. And this is just a... We don't even know if this, if this was somebody Solomon actually knew. He wrote this as a song. You know, this, this could be... Uh, an example given, we don't know that this was actually one of Solomon's wives. So it could be just purely allegorical. And, 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 and it points to something even greater than the relationship between a husband and a wife. It could point to this relationship that we so value, and that is the relationship between Christ and His bride. So which one do we take? Do we look at it just at face value and we, we just glean from it what we can? for this relationship or for this time or this life underneath the sun? Or do we look at it and, and, and pull in those, the, the spiritualizing of it to say, oh no, this is about the relationship between Christ and his bride? Well, I don't think we have to take one or the other. I don't think we should take one or the other. Because I think I can see both in this text. And we can benefit from it in our relationships with our husbands or with our wives. We can benefit from it in, in, in gaining a greater understanding of the relationship between Christ and His church. As I study, I, I've read this a few times. I've studied it with my wife. We've, we've looked at it on the, the physical level to look at it as a love story together. But I've never fully digested it until I started studying it this week. This text is rich it's it's lovely it's beautiful it's 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 a joy to soak in this text did you know this was dl moody's favorite book did you know this was charles spurgeon's favorite book i had no idea spurgeon did 59 sermons on the song of solomon eight chapters 59 sermons Some guy named John Gill, he was a Puritan, did 122 sermons on Song of Solomon. 
And then some guy from like around 1000 AD, Bernard of Clairvaux, French guy, he did 88 sermons on chapters 1 and 2. I'm going to cover chapter 1 and 2 today. He did 88 messages on just those two chapters. It's rich. And what I want to do is encourage you, because (laughs) to be honest, it's a little bit awkward for me to talk with you about an intimate relationship you should be experiencing with your spouse. It's a little weird. So I want to encourage you to soak this in yourself. Read this book on your own. Take it to your personal time with God. This this book, if I were to, to sum it up, it elevates the value of intimacy. Both in the physical and in the spiritual. It elevates the value of intimacy. Like I said, we don't even know for sure if this story is an event that actually took place that Solomon is recounting, or if it's just a song that he wrote. But let's look at the characters, and we need to understand the characters because it's kind of laid out like a play. First of all, we're going to see the beloved. That's the the, the guy in the story, the hero, if you would. It's Solomon. It's the king. It's the shepherd. He is. So when, when it says of the beloved... He's speaking of the groom. The Shulamite is the woman um, and, or the bride. And then there's a, another group, and, and uh, another major character or group of characters would be the daughters of Jerusalem. And they're kind of, in the song, they're kind of the chorus. That's where the, the, the girls come out to sing. You know, it's, it's like they, they, they've got an input, but it's a minor input. And some of the trouble with the Song of Solomon and understanding the book is figuring out who is talking when. <laughs> All right, is this the beloved? Is this the Shulamite? Is this the, the chorus? Who is speaking here? But if you have a study Bible or if you have your own Bible, as you look at it, chances are, if it's a King James, a New King James, or even most of the translations, kind of put in suggestions as to who they think would be speaking. Now that's interesting because... Various translations would differ on who's speaking. For example, chapter 2, verse 1, some would say that it is um, the beloved speaking. Some would say it's the Shulamite speaking. And depending on your viewpoint, it kind of changes what it means. The suggestions as to who is speaking when are not inspired. right? The Word of God is inspired. But the chapters, the verses, they're not inspired. The suggestions on who's speaking are not inspired. They're good suggestions, and we'll probably stick pretty close to them, especially if you have a new King James. That's what I'm reading from, and so that's, we'll stick pretty close to those. All right, here we go. You ready? That's our intro. Let's get into the text now. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. So tells us what we got, the Song of Songs, who wrote it? Solomon. That would be the king, David's son. The one who wrote Ecclesiastes, the one who wrote Proverbs, it's all there. Song, or we learn from 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32, that Solomon wrote 1,005 songs. This is the only one we have. <laughs> but it's the song of songs. It's the best. This is the top, this, this, this is the top of the charts, if you would. 
He calls it the song, or the, the Word of God calls it the Song of Songs. It is the very best. I like that terminology, and the Bible uses that when it's speaking of the most extreme, right? Speaking of Jesus, He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. When we talked about in the book of Ecclesiastes, what a waste is if you're not including God in your life, what a waste life is when you're not including God in your life, we see uh, Solomon say it's the vanity of vanities. It's the most extreme. When you, the high priest once a year would enter into the holy of holies. It's the most extreme, a holy place. And here we have the song of songs. And this is a look at the intimate love of a husband and a wife. And it's the ultimate of songs tells of the best of this world, and it lifts our heart to our relationship with Christ. No warm-up here. Verse 2 thrusts us right into it, throws us right into it. Verse 2, the Shulamite speaking says, let him kiss me with the kisses of my mouth, of his mouth rather, for your love is better than wine. (laughs) So no warm-up. No, take me out to dinner. No, we we just get thrown right into the story. Let him kiss me with the kisses of my mouth. This is a a kiss is an intimate thing, is it not? You can't kiss two people at one time. It's an impossibility. God designed it to happen between one person and another person. So it's an intimate expression. A kiss is one-on-one as a marriage is and as it is with Christ, our relationship one-on-one. She expresses her desire. The Shulamite is speaking. She expresses her desire. Kiss me. That's her, her desire. She's, she's telling him or what, what she wants. Yet she waits on him to act. Right? Let him kiss me with the kisses of my mouth. But he, she's not... She's not taking the first step. She's allowing him to respond, but she's still expressing her desire. She waits on him to act, but she's submitted to his love. The kisses of his mouth. It's an intimate thing. It's a good thing. right? In the prodigal story, we see um, when the prodigal comes home, the father kisses his neck. That's that's, uh, the kiss of forgiveness. He welcomes him back into the family. He, he, he kisses him on the neck. Um, Judas kissed Jesus on the cheek. That's the kiss of, of betrayal. Not all the time. It's okay to kiss your spouse on the cheek. That's not what I'm trying to say. But that was what was intended. And here the Shulamite is saying, no, kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For his love is better than wine. What does she mean there? Wine's a pretty good thing. But wine brings a temporary joy that will be gone in the morning or gone in a couple hours. His love for her is better than wine in that her lover's love is deeper and longer lasting than that of wine. A temporary high says, verse 3, because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Not only does she 
and throughout the book, we're going to see the praise of their, their features. Not only does she praise his physical features, he, she also praises his reputation. She praises his character. And that's what she's saying here. Your name is ointment poured forth. A man's name is his reputation. It's what he's known for. And when you're above reproach, and you have a good reputation among men, when you've got a good relationship with your coworkers and your family and, and things are going well, when they hear your name, that's a good thing. Oh, I, I like him. I, you know, when you hear somebody's name, when, when somebody has a bad reputation, you hear their name, it's, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. But this is a, an ointment poured forth. Her, the, the, her beloved's name is uh, of good reputation. She's praising him for his character. All girls dream of this type of guy. Verse 4, draw me away, is what she says, the Shulamite says. Her desire is to be alone with him. And you know what? Speaking on the... Uh, I've I got to stop doing this so you guys will figure it out what I'm talking about, be it on the, on the earthly plane or the heavenly plane. You'll figure it out as, by the context, but... Speaking on the earthly plane, when she says, draw me away, a marriage needs intentional time alone together. As Satan wants to kill, steal, and destroy, he will take time from your marriage. He will try to um, make you so busy that you don't have time for each other. That you don't, and when you do have time, you don't have energy. You know, so we need to be intentional to draw away with your spouse. But you know what? The same is true of those who love Christ. It's to our prayer closet that we find that deep intimacy. Sometimes I don't think you can fully experience the intimacy of your relationship with Christ in a corporate setting. It's, it's great that we have the body of Christ and we're to encourage one another, but it is in that intimate setting of just you and the Lord that your love for God will grow deeper. So I encourage you to say that unto your spouse and unto your God. Draw me away. And then the, the chorus chimes in, the daughters of Jerusalem. We will run after you. <laughs> Not sure exactly what they're trying to say, but I think it would be, we want to see how this plays out. This is such an intriguing relationship, the way this is happening between the beloved and the Shulamite. It's so captivating that we're going to run after you. We want to see how it plays out. Not in an imposing way. They're not like being voyeurs or whatever and trying to watch all this. But just they're so intrigued by the relationship. They're drawn to it. We'll run after you. The Shulamite says the king has brought me into his chambers. There's a, now an intimacy. Uh, uh, he has drawn her away. The, the chambers were a private area only set for the king. It's an invitation into the intimate <coughs> made by the king. Christ tore the temple veil in two. He invites us into the Holy of Holies. He invites us into his chambers, into the intimate relationship. The daughters of Jerusalem respond, still in verse 4, We will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. They're celebrating the love that she has found. And then the Shulamite says to her beloved, Rightly do they love you. 
rightly, he's, she's saying, it's a sign of respect. Everybody, everybody loves you. She says in verse 5, I am dark, but lovely. Oh, daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, those were, those were tents made in the south, and they were made, the, the roofs of the tents were made with black um, goat's hair, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. She says, hear this, do not look upon me because I'm dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of their vineyards, but my own vineyard not kept. So now she's in the chamber with the king. It's just her and her beloved. She's in the presence of the king by herself. And she's suddenly feeling self-conscious, right? She's, don't look at me. Don't. And she's making excuses for the way that she appears. She's self-deprecating. She's putting herself down. Evidently, she was, her nickname might have been Cinderella because she was put out to work, and that's why she was tanned dark, it says. The sun has tanned me. Her skin would not have been of the best quality if she was forced to work outside. They made me keep her the vineyard, so she hadn't been able to care for herself. So those in, in that day, certainly in the king's house, women would have been, when they were treated with favor, wouldn't have worked out in the sun. So the fairer the skin, the greater status you would have because you weren't outside working. And, and, and she would be, those that were in the king's house would be soft skin. Remember Esther? When they brought, after they were replacing King Vashti, they brought all the women into the king's house and for a year they gave them oil treatments. And, you know, the, these desert rose ladies weren't, presentable to the king. They had a year of beauty treatments prior to them going into the king. But she's self-conscious and and even self-deprecating to to put herself down. And that's what I want to focus on tonight is is I want to look at the relationship between uh, the Shulamite and and the way she views herself and the way her beloved views her. And it's, it's it's a beautiful picture. Because the same is true of us when we're in the presence of God. When we're in the presence of the Holy of Holies, right? What does Isaiah say when he's, when he's caught up? When, when God is looking for somebody to go for him in Isaiah chapter 6, what does he say? I don't even belong to be here. I shouldn't be here at all. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. I shouldn't be here. He's suddenly self-aware when you're in the presence of the king. Watch the response. Verse 7, and and how it builds throughout the chapters. To her beloved, she says, Tell me, O you whom I love, where do you feed your flock? Where do you make it rest at noon? For why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? She's asking questions. She's she's expressing that she wants to be with him. I want to be with you. I want to join you in your work. I don't want another. I'm not looking for your companions. I would desire a relationship with you. She doesn't want to veil herself, meaning she doesn't want to act as a prostitute acted. She's not prostituting herself for him. That was the idea of the veil in those days. They would veil themselves when they were for sale. 
So she's not interested in that. She wants to be modest and she wants to be just with him. We see here in the verse 7 that the king is not only a king, but he's also a shepherd. Where are your flocks? Where are you when you tend your flocks? Where do you go? So the king is also a shepherd. Hmm. Our king is also a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The beloved response, the king responds, the shepherd responds in verse 8. If you do not know, O fairest among women, see how he views her? She's self-conscious, and, and her, his response immediately is, no, you're the fairest among women, lifting her. If you do not know, O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tent. She, he invites her into a more intimate relationship He invites her to find where he is. Follow the footsteps of the flock. The church is the flock. It's an encouragement for you and I to to make sure we stay engaged, to make sure we stay involved in church. Like we said on Sunday, there are no Lone Ranger Christians. He says, I've compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. I wouldn't recommend, guys, that you use the things that Solomon says to his beloved in the context of 2015, because they may not translate so well. Honey, you like a horse. Probably wouldn't go over so well. What's he saying? You're like a filly. I had to ask what a filly was. Michelle knew I didn't, wasn't, I'm not a horse person. What is he saying? You're like to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. What he's saying is you are unique because Pharaoh's chariots weren't pulled by female horses. They were pulled by stallions. Philly is a, she said, an immature female horse. And so he's comparing her to a, a, a unique situation uh, certainly, a filly amongst all those stallions would be attractive. You know, they would be attracted to her because of her uniqueness. And that's what he's saying. You're, you're, um, you're the fairest among women. There is none like you. I compare you to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. The, you, you're unique. You're set above. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, she says. In, he says in verse 10. Your neck with chains of gold. She evidently cares for herself in an external. She wears these ornaments and cares for her. We're going to see that he praises her internal beauty as well. The daughters of Jerusalem, the chorus say in verse 11, we'll make you ornaments of gold with studs of silver. You get this idea that they want to celebrate their love. They want to lavishly celebrate this love that's happening. Verse 12, the Shulamite says, when the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. This is a, an interesting picture, and, and what is exactly being said, I want you to meditate on that, but some consider, things to consider. When the king is at his table, what happens at the table of the king? Provision is made, right? It's where uh, you, you consider Solomon's table, and it, it talks about in the king, in the chronicles or kings, how much... 
Solomon brought to the table. It's where provision happened. And so when the king is at his table, the response, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. Her response, in my opinion, would be her response is praise. This beautiful aroma comes from her. Ephesians 5.2, we walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. As Christ has become our sacrifice, a sweet-smelling aroma in the nostrils of the Father, so too this praise that comes forth from, from her being provided for at the king's table. What is spikenard? Anybody got it? Anybody got some spikenard? Well, Mark 14, we learn about spikenard a little bit. Speaking of Mary as she comes to anoint Jesus' feet. Mark 14, Jesus said, Let her alone, speaking of Mary. Why do you trouble you? Why do you trouble her? For she's done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do good to them. Good, uh, but you, me, you do not have always. She's done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, Wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. This is Mary's way of praising Jesus, is by offering spikenard. And so we see a similar thing here. It gets even more intimate. Verse 13, A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. This bundle of myrrh, this uh, uh, satchel of of myrrh, a fragrance that would remind her of her lover. When Michelle and I were dating, I gave her one of my shirts to wear. She would wear as pajamas. Why? Because it smelled like me. And so that's, uh, it reminded her of me. And so that, that smell creates memory. And, and as she would awake in the night, she would smell this myrrh and be reminded of her love, a fragrant reminder of his presence. Where is it kept between the breasts? That certainly is a very intimate spot. We think of the disciple whom Jesus loved laying at his breast, a sign of intimacy. Speaking of John, but it's also the home of the heart. The spot between the breasts is the home of the heart. And so here in her, at, at her heart is this bundle of myrrh. Myrrh, of course, being the, the, the spice that was used in the burial, reminding us of Jesus' death. It says in verse 14, My beloved is a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of Engedi. Engedi was in the, in, the, uh, in the valley. It was in, uh, uh, in the middle of the desert. It was an oasis. It was this be- it's this beautiful, Google Engedi, this beautiful picture of an, a desert oasis, nothing like it. Waterfalls and, and beautiful flowers out there in the middle of nowhere, 120 degrees in the spring, you know, and this, this beautiful oasis. And so She's saying the one that she loves is like this beautiful bloom in the vineyard of Engedi, reminding me of a, a spot of refreshing. 
The beloved says, Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. Fair meaning beautiful, not fair meaning, yeah, you're all right. <laughs> you know? That's not what he's saying. It means you're, you're beautiful. These dove's eyes, I, I don't know. People said different things about what, what she was, he was trying to say, what Solomon was trying to say. Dove, the eyes are the window to, window to the soul. The dove is the representation of the spirit. And, you know, so he, you know, it just, you could go that way. Or I learned that doves have singular vision. They can only look at one thing at a time. So maybe that's what you have dove's eyes. You're, you're, you're fully captivated by me. He didn't say you've got owl eyes. That's, that's good. <laughs> so the Shulamite, so Shula, we're going to have to relax a little if we're going to get through these eight chapters. We're going to have to loosen up just a little bit. So, all right. The Shulamite, behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. The beams of our house are cedar and the rafters of fir as they walk through perhaps the, the, the gardens of Solomon or through the forest. She's considering these things. What, what it speaks to me is that the beams of the houses are cedar, the rafters of fir. Those are strong things. She's speaking of security. As I talk about, um, as I do premarital counseling, one of the things I, I want to make sure that each person understands is what the other person needs from their spouse. What's, what's the greatest need? And the greatest need a wife has from her, her spouse is the sense of security. It's the idea that my, my man's going to take care of me. My, mind, my man's going to provide for me. He's got me. I feel safe here. That's what... That's what a, a bride is looking for. And here she says, I've got that in you. Like the, the beams of the house are cedar, the rafters of fir. So chapter 2. She says, I'm the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. So slowly we're starting to see her self-image improving as her beloved continues to pour forth his love. Now, now she's, she's not saying, don't look at me. Now she's saying, I'm a common flower. Uh, you see these every day. That's the, the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley. Those are, those are common flowers. And like I said, verse 1 and chapter 2, depending on who's saying it, could mean different things because some of, the, some of the people would understand it's Solomon. It's the beloved saying, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. He's calling himself that. And if so, that, that's where we get the idea, that's where we get the hymn from. Yeah, the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. And, and, and so that's one understanding. But I, I would take it to say, and, and the way the New King James sections it out is, this is the Shulamite still speaking. And I think she's saying, I'm just a common flower. Watch how he responds. Verse 2. This is the beloved responding, confident on this. Like a lily among thorns, so is my love among daughters. No, you're not common. No, you're not just one of a million flowers. You are one uh, 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 unlike any other. You're, you're a beautiful flower. Everybody else is a thorn. It's, he's elevating herself. He's, he's lavishing his love upon her. You're not common. There's none like you. And she responds in praise in verse 3. Like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. 
I sat down in his shade with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. She, she responds with praise for him, like an apple tree. That would have been very rare. If there were apple trees at all in, in the setting of the Middle East you know, before Christ, we don't know about it. There were citrus trees, so maybe they were talking about citrus trees, or maybe Solomon amassed all kinds of wealth. He brought in all kinds of horticulture from all over the world. Perhaps Solomon actually had an apple tree. It would have been very, 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 very rare. And that's what she's saying. Your, my guy is very rare, beloved among the sons. And she finds security in him. I sat down in his shade with great delight. I find rest in you. That's the idea of shade. And provision from you. That's the idea of the fruit. So now the Shulamite speaks to the daughters of Jerusalem. He brought me to the banqueting house. And his banner over me was love. Beautiful picture. The, the, he, he, he invited me away. He brought me to the banqueting house. Literally, the translation is the wine house. It's where they would store the wines. They didn't have underground cellars or things like that. They would actually store the wines in this set-away place. And so he's, he's inviting her away, away from it all. This is a, a, a spot of secrecy. And he's declaring his love. His banner over her was not one of hatred. It was not one of fear. It was not one of shame. It was not one of, of sorrow or pain. It was one of love. This flag that he raised was love. Considering our relationship with Christ, it's in the wine or the blood that Christ declares his love for us and ushers us into the presence of his banquet. It's through the, the blood shed that you and I have a right relationship with Jesus Christ. And there is a day coming when we will sit down at that marriage supper of the Lamb spoken of in Revelation chapter 19. Sustain me with cakes of raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. <laughs> I don't even know what's going on. I'm lovesick. I had a friend years ago who was a songwriter, and he wrote a song called, Is This Love or Is It the Flu? <laughs> <laughs> Because there is something to be said for those endorphins. Really, actually, I'm sorry, there, there's a more technical understanding of it that can be misunderstood for sickness. David Guzik says, according to Dr. Jeffrey Sloss, there is a brain hormone that mediates the feeling of being love or infatuation. One of these neurotransmitters is known as phenethylamine. And it floods our brain when we fall in love. It's also fairly high, it's in fairly high qualities in chocolate, quantities in chocolate. This endorphin. The chemical gives us feelings of exhilaration and thrill and well being, and in high amounts can lead to a loss of appetite. The chemical works somewhat in a cycle, at least in a relationship. At the beginning of the relationship, it spikes up. After four or five years, it begins to decline. Across cultures, there is a spike in the rate of divorces at about four and a half years of marriage. This leads some scientists to say that we are made for monogamy, but only in the sense of one partner at a time, and then changing partners every five years or so. Or so. 
Yet, Dr. Schloss says that we know this is not true. In the brain, there are completely different pathways with completely different chemical mediators. These begin to form about the four-year point in a relationship, and they contribute to different feelings. Instead of feelings of thrill and I can't eat, there are feelings of deep contentment and gratitude. One of these chemicals that mediates these feelings is oxytocin, this is the, uh, which is the same chemical released to the bonding of a mother together with her infant. Some suggest that the relationship has two major phases, attraction and attachment. The attraction, the attraction phase is powerful and the kind of condition that makes one say, I am lovesick. Yet the key to a long-term fulfilling relationship is staying with it past the attraction phase and into the attachment phase. There are some counselors who devote almost their entire counseling practice trying to help what they call love junkies, people who are so addicted to the uh, phenylthalamine phase that they bounce from relation to relationship uh, just after the rush. So... Um, one could say that we're engineered for the longer-lasting attachment phase, and the attraction phase is meant to be a portal into the attachment phase and not something unto itself. The good news is that as a relationship moves into the attachment phase, the attraction phase recycles, and a long-married couple often experiences the sense of falling in love all over again several times through their marriage. So there is the idea of this being lovesick, and some some merit to it, but she's looking for a way to sustain herself. Verse 6 is pretty intense. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. This is an, an intimate embrace. We know that this is an embrace that occurs lying down. How do we know? Because his hand is under her head. Standing up, that's not possible. Lying down it is. Truth of the matter is, God designed sex to be enjoyable. There are parts of the female anatomy that are given just purely for enjoyment. They offer no other process. God designed sex to be enjoyable. We'll talk more about that another time. It's not just for procreation. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field. I don't know what that means. Do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. I, like I said, some of it, yeah. You don't call your wife a horse. You don't swear by gazelles or does. I don't, okay. But don't stir up love. That's what we don't want to miss in this verse. She's speaking to the daughters of Jerusalem. Do not stir up love or, nor awaken until it pleases do not lend your heart to anybody but your future spouse. And I want to speak to girls especially. I, I, I pray this over my girls, and I, I, I've encouraged them to not give their heart away to anyone who isn't their spouse. Because you give away a piece of your heart, you don't get it back. So take this to heart, what the Scripture says. Guard your heart. Wait on the one whom God has for you. Don't stir up love nor awaken love until it pleases. Wait to give your heart to the man God has given to you. And then, verse 8, 
the voice of my beloved. Behold, he, is com- he comes leaping on the mountains, skipping upon the hills. The, the, she's excited at his arrival. He's, he's passing over the mountains. Mountains in the, in the Scriptures signify difficulty most often. And there's nothing that is difficult for the beloved. Nothing is difficult for Christ. No problem too big. No problem too small. He gets closer. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He's looking through the windows, not in a voyeuristic way. This is just him growing closer, gazing through the lattice. My beloved spoke and he said to me, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Draw unto me. Draw unto the Lord and he will draw unto you, it says in James. As he draws nearer, it's for the purpose of being with her. Jesus says in John chapter 14, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Phrase we're familiar with. We know that Jesus is now preparing a place for his bride, but that was that was the way Jewish marriage worked. You would get betrothed, and as you were betrothed, that was like an engagement where the 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 soon-to-be wife would stay in the household of her parents, but she had been bought with a dowry, and the, the husband would go and prepare a place. He would literally go build a house for him and his wife to occupy. And when the house was ready, they didn't set a date for the wedding. It was when the house was ready, he would go get his bride. They would take her and carry her across the threshold and consummate the marriage in their new home. And that was the the process of the marriage. And so we see that in the relationship with Jesus. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And we see that in Song of Solomon, that he is coming to take her away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land, the fig tree puts forth her green figs, and the vines with the tender grapes give a good smell. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away, O my dove in the cleft of the rock, in the secret place of the cliff. Let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Beautiful picture. You can meditate on it longer, but it's just, uh, it's the, the picture of spring. The winter is past. The rain is over. Flowers are appearing. New life, new season, new relationship, deep love. New character in verse 15. Her brothers speak Catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. Good encouragement for you and I in our marriage relationships as well, that you, we would guard our vineyard, we would guard our relationship with our spouse against the foxes, against the things that would try to steal our intimacy. That's good for our relationship with Christ as well. The Shulamite says in verse 16, My beloved is mine, and I am his. He feeds his flock among the lilies. You hear that? Do you hear how her heart has changed in these verses? She's, she's now speaking of this sense of security. She's speaking from this peace that she now has, that knowing that she's loved. 
My beloved is mine and I am his. Beautiful picture. And then to her beloved, until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, turn away, turn my beloved and be like a gazelle or a young stag upon the mountains of Bether. Uh, There's some understanding the mountains of Bether. There was a picture of those things that divide. And she pleads that that which divides would be overcome and removed. It is a beautiful picture, and I had to go more quickly through it than I wanted to. But again, my encouragement would be that you take this into your private relationship with your Savior and breathe this in. Enjoy the intimacy that He wants to offer us. The conclusion, I would say, and the one thing, if there were one thing I want us to take away from this study tonight, it's this. In the presence of true love, we go from self-awareness to security. True in marriage, true in Christ. We go from, don't even look upon me, to, I am my beloved, beloved, and he is mine. And it's a beautiful picture of how the beloved, every time, lifts her head, carries her, draws him, her unto himself. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of, of her, him raising her, her up. True in marriage, true in Christ. Amen? Thanks for hanging with me. I went a little long, but trust that it was worth it. Let's stand, let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. For it is in you that we are found. It is in you that we find that safe haven under the apple tree. It is in you that we find peace for our soul. You welcomed us into the banquet hall. You invited us into the marriage supper of the Lamb through the wine, through the blood of Christ which was shed on our behalf. Thank you for this deep and intimate relationship that you desire for each one of us. I pray nobody would leave this place wondering if God loves them. You died that we might know that love. I pray that you would strengthen our relationships. I pray that for the marriages in this place, Lord, that we would be intentional about chasing away the foxes, carving out time for intimacy. And I pray for all of our relationship with you, Lord, that we would value our time with you above all others. For you're worthy of our praise. We thank you for taking us from self-awareness to security in you. We love you, Lord, as we're about to sing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.